Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name's Ryan. My name's Brent. And this episode, we're going to let the Mecco flow with SST204, the Universal Congress of This Is Mechalodix EP. We love Joe and the UCO on the show. This record is no different for us. Uh, very, very pumped to get into this one. You know, so far since we hit the 200s, we've been improv We've been super heavy. We've been world music-y, anti-folk-y, and now it's jazzy. And man, I just love it. Yeah, man. And we've got some popular favorites coming up too. So Yeah, looking forward to it. Now, uh, before we get into the the more lighthearted spiels, if, if I can put it that way, we, we lost a couple of guys in the last couple of weeks, a couple of musicians that Brent and I are big fans of, one on the tree and uh, one big-time important Canadian musician, uh, Mark Lanigan and Dallas Good, Brent. We should make mention of that. It sucks that they're gone. Two baritones, which is really weird, too, like in the yeah. same week. Yeah. Both, I would say Dallas was much more unexpected than Mark. Mark has definitely had some health issues last year, it sounds like, um, that he documented it in his book. But Dallas is a year older than me, man. Yeah, it really puts things in perspective. Yeah. You know, and Dallas is, is an interesting story for us in Canada because it just feels like we knew him almost. And you definitely hung out with him a ton. I mean, I've hung out with him a bit way, way back, but just the nicest guy, amazing, amazing musician, mm-hmm. a huge loss for all of his fans. Um, it's, it's, uh, I'm just kind of, Without words, I've just been listening to a lot of the Sadies lately, oh, and uh, yeah. some some of his other records too, uh, like Phonocomb. Getting yeah. into Phonocomb again, man, Dallas just ruled. For Canadian bands or for touring bands, period, I would say it's up there with DOA, No Means No, and the Sadies for touring bands I've seen the most times. Yeah, and me too. Booked the Sadies so many times as a promoter. We played with them three times. Our band. Yep. Uh, they were always super complimentary. We were on a comp with them one time. You mean uh, the Shadowy Men tribute, right? Yeah. We were on that comp with them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Dallas went on to play in Shadowy Men as well? He even suggested the last time we played with them on like one of our reunion shows that we should play some shows with Shadowy Men out yeah. in Western Canada, which of course was never going to happen. But just the fact that some of one of your idols would you know, pay you a compliment like that, it, you know, he'll never know how much that meant. meant oh to yeah. Me, you know? da- Dallas was super humble too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like man, could he shred? Check out their record with John Doe. That's like insane. I know they, they did the record with Andre Williams. Uh, there's the one with Gord Downey, John Langford. Oh, and not to mention the very first time I saw the Sadies is when they opened for Nico case Mm-hmm. And then they stayed on stage and were her backing band. That's one of the best shows in a little dingy bar I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, every time I saw the Sadies play, I was like, all I could do was stand there with my jaw on the floor and say to myself, <laughs> I need to go home and practice my guitar, like yeah. right after this show. Yeah, so amazing. What a yeah. huge loss. And then Mark, of course, like that voice, right? Like. Yeah. What a big loss. We've went through some Trees records in the last year, and it's just uh, another person 
on the SS tree that we've lost, which is a shame. Mark was super prolific, too, and all of his records were new and interesting and pushing the envelope, and his collaborations were really interesting. Every record was, you know, it was obviously Mark Lanigan's signature voice, mm-hmm. but a new context. Um, he always had an amazing group of musicians on his records. Huge loss there, too. Yeah, if he would have done a record with the Sadies, that would have Ooh. been like the oh ultimate. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah, don't say that. Yeah. I'm al- my heart is already aching enough as it is. So, anyways, we had to mention those. Uh, big loss. Still kind of feeling a little down, but, uh, you know, life goes on. Why don't we start off uh, after that with some spiels, Brent? Something a little bit more light to get us into some UCO. Okay, can I go? Yeah, man. I have some podcast shout-outs, plural. Excellente. Okay. That record got me high. I've mentioned this wonderful show in the past. Yep. Host Rob Alba had Watt on to talk about uh, Blue Oyster Cult one time, I think Mm -hmm. I talked about. Roger Miller was on talking about Piper at the Gates of Dawn. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Ryan Smith, who's in the current version of Soul Asylum, was on discussing Zen Arcade, many others. Recently, they had Dan Bonebreak of Dashboard Confessional on to talk about Allroy's Revenge. Oh, no way. Yeah. That's a great one, man. Holy smokes. Yeah, so he knows the All Guys personally. Uh, so he had some really cool insights into the tracks on the album. Like, I got the impression he's picked picked their brain about that album. Before the episode? Or just or, like... Or on tour or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, dude, those... I mean, I like all, all, but those early records with Scott and Dave are just insanely amazing. Yeah. They also mention a band that Dan Bonebreak was in in the early 90s called Quit. Oh, I've never heard of them. Yeah, they did some touring with all, he mentions. Uh, I had never heard of them either, so I did some digging... They were a Florida band. Looks like they self-released a cassette in 1988 uh, and released one album album in 1990 called Earlier Thoughts. Now there's a band camp up, uh, Quit HQ, uh, with a remastered version of the album with some bonus tracks. And it looks like they've also reunited at one point, or they still are, I'm not sure. Uh, there, uh, there's a definite all descendants influence there. It's cool. Worth checking out. Quit. Yeah, I will. Okay. The ocean child podcast, Ryan, have you heard of this? No. First time I've heard of that. Okay. Perfect timing for me. I was talking recently about my newfound appreciation for the music of, uh, among other Beatles related projects, Yoko Ono. Mm. So there's a new tribute album called Ocean Child, which was assembled by Benjamin Gibbard of Death Cab for Cutie. David Byrne with Yola Tango is on this tribute. Mm. Death Cab, Deer Hoof, Flaming Lips, a bunch of bands like that. Yeah, yeah, I got you. Nobody I'm really into, to be honest. But here's the cool thing about this podcast. They interview a number of the artists, like David Byrne, for example, on you know, their appreciation for Yoko's music and why they chose the track they did. They all talk about what a fierce artist she is, how underappreciated her music is, how unfairly maligned she's been, Mm -hmm. and their hopes to change that with the tribute album. 
The best thing about the podcast is that it's fully authorized by Yoko and Sean Lennon. So they play many of the tracks back to back. It's really a great way to dive in further if you think, you know, you want to dip your toe into Yoko's music. Interesting. That may be more up my alley. You know, I, I, I tried to start watching that Beatles documentary on Disney. And you know what? Wasn't for you? phony Beatlemania has bitten the dust man I I found it I found it so boring I got I gotta admit like really interesting sure a documentary about a documentary eh I'm not so sure you know what rock doc I watched lately I don't like the band but it was an awesome documentary Mm. the triumph documentary oh yeah I want to see that man it's awesome but I do like Triumph. but those banger films guys make good documentaries yeah yeah but I mean, the Beatles one, oh, I, I couldn't stay awake. I had to watch, I tried to watch it in like 20 minute bursts and it was just like, oh my God, forget it. I just, I don't know, man. Phony Beatlemania has bitten the dust. What yeah, can I say? Fair enough. Fair enough. But uh, there's two versions of this podcast. The one with just interviews and the one where they play the tunes. Listen to the one with the tunes, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I, I mean, there's a, there's a part of me that wonders if like, John and Yoko stuff might be the piece that is up my alley. Although, although I do like some wings now and then, and I will always love the traveling Wilburys. So there. Yeah. Oh man. Who doesn't love the Wilburys? Yeah. Okay. Carrying on with my podcast shout out as podcast pal, Michael T. Fournier pointed out to me, the podcast, the alphabetical Fugazi from Mm. Fugaz. Fuga A to Fuga Z, <laughs> love the name. Yeah, uh, with Ian James Wright has wrapped with a with special guests Ian Mackay and Guy Pichado. So I'm going to admit admit to being somewhat of a hypocrite here. I've complained mostly to myself uh, that we get you know ten times the listens to say a Soundgarden or a Black Flag episode than we do for a Run Westy Run episode or a UCO episode. Unfortunately, yeah. And, you know, whatever, I get it. Um, you know, there are probably Soundgarden fans who who just aren't interested in 95% of the other stuff on SST. So that's fair. It uh, is. But, you know, I want people to get into the other stuff too. But I have to admit, I've only checked out select episodes of this podcast based, based on either the guest or the song being discussed. Uh, but the episodes I have listened to have been great. Now, I've seen a lot, a lot of podcasts start and then stop after, you know, 20 episodes. So the fact that this show wrapped is an achievement that should be applauded. You know, you and I know how much work goes into podcasting. So total respect to Ian. Congrats on a successful show. And I'm going to start over from episode one, which is 23 beats off and give this podcast the attention it deserves. Nice. Okay. Speaking of exceptional podcasts, a fave that I've mentioned many times Paisley Stage, Raspberry and Rhyme, mm-hmm. uh, hosts Jeff and Soraya were recently joined, uh, as frequently happens, with guest host Ronnie Barnett of The Muffs to talk to Roger Kunkel of Thin White Rope. Oh, no way. So they go through the band's history, and I have to say, I really do need to give Thin White Rope a solid revisiting. They, they mentioned on the show that Frontier has reissued their albums. Uh, and you know, Jeff says like, I usually don't buy reissues because especially if I have the originals, but he says these 
sound amazing, and he, he's recommending him picking them up. Sorry, sorry. Did you just say you don't usually buy reissues? No, no. Jeff said that on the show. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because I'm like, if that's Brent saying that, that's that's poppycock of the highest order. No, I buy you... all the reissues. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, man. But, you know, so great opportunity to, to pick those up. Yeah. Jeff, uh, Jeff Brenneman from Paisley Stage Raspberry and Rhyme, has a new podcast with co-host Greg Gunky. I think that's how you say it. Uh, but it's a video podcast up on YouTube, and it's called Independent Podcast Review. They're doing what we're doing, Ryan, but with independent project records. Oh, no way. So they have three episodes out. And nice. the, f- the first one is with label owner Bruce Leischer. Yeah, yeah. And it's all about, you know, the how and why he's reactivating the label. And what his future plans are in regards to new releases and reissues. He uh, he also talks about how he started the label, some of his bands like Savage Republic and Scenic. It's mm-hmm. great stuff, so check it out. Yeah, I love those records. They just they feel like a piece of art. Yeah. So I I gotta check that out. And his Bruce's book was just killer. It was page after page of amazing handmade letterpress artwork yeah they talk about the book on there too okay a few more i stumbled across this podcast called performance anxiety hosted by mark shea he's had on some cool interesting guests like ken andrews of failure norman westberg of swans uh and an interesting guest for you ryan speaking of the clash right Mm -hmm. uh ellen foley who had some really interesting connections to the clash (laughs) yeah her albums are like you know not on my shelf, put it that way. Yeah, uh, He's had a bunch more, but most recently he had Doss Dude, Lyle Heisen on the show. Oh, sweet. It's a great interview. I won't I won't spoil it. Everyone should check it out. But he, uh, he talks about Dom and them touring as the backing band for Arthur Lee at one point, which I don't think we knew about. Like uh, Arthur Lee from Love? Yeah. Wow. Uh, his post-Dom and career doing music placement for indie labels. He goes into way more detail about that. Of course, he talks about Royal Arctic Institute. Good stuff. Uh, I checked out a podcast, Ryan, you recommend recently, uh, Brian Ritchie on the Consequence of Sound uh, associated podcast, Kyle Meredith with. I've heard this show before. Uh, He's had some cool guests, and this interview with Brian is great. They talk about Sonic Temple, uh, the SST era a bit, but the focus is on the Fens album three. Mm-hmm. A bunch of cool stories about that record. Not one you hear talked about a lot. It's the 30th anniversary of that record. Good interview. Good excuse to revisit that album also. Mm-hmm. Uh, the End on End guys are killing it these days. Uh, they're into the 90s now. They have a great episode up on the first Jawbox record. I learned a bunch of stuff I didn't know. Uh, and they have drummer Adam Wade on as a guest. Uh, the Dudes at Where It Went, that's the Revelation Records podcast. They just started their new season, and it opened with a bang, Ryan. The album is a real humdinger. It's Do You Know Who You Are by Texas Is The Reason. Oh, yeah. That's a great one. Yep. It's a two-parter. Part one has singer-guitarist Garrett Klon and drummer Chris Daly on it. Part two has guitarist Norman Brannon, bassist Scott Weingard, and album producer... Jawbox's Jay Robbins. Wow, that's a really solid lineup for yeah. a focus on a record like that. Oh, nice one. High quality podcast, man. Yeah, yeah. Okay, the last one I want to highlight is one I think maybe you mentioned. Hmm. 
I don't really mention many podcasts. I feel like you did. Okay. It's, it's the Oh Brother podcast, mm. which is all about the fall. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally did that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Because Hank was on there and it was killer. Yeah. yeah. So it's hosted by Paul and Steve Hanley, uh, who were both members of the band. They have a lot of connections in the group, so lots of interesting guests. Uh, a great, great era of the band in particular, too, yeah. right? The Hanley guys? Yep. They recently had on fall super, super fan Henry Rollins. And of course he nerds out on them and ends up asking them more questions than, than they ask him. Uh, great chat though. So I have a question for you, Ryan, and then a challenge for next oh episode. <laughs> so I have to admit to being a marginal fall fan at best. I did pull out this week. This, this is all I own Ryan for the fall. This, uh, 50,000 fall fans can't be right. Oh wrong. yeah. Double CD. Yeah, yeah. Good intro. Good so intro. that's yep. that's it. And I mean, their catalog is just so vast and daunting. Huge, huge. So uh, f- first, my question is this. Have you read Steve Hanley's book, The Big Midweek? I've heard it referenced multiple times as one of the greatest music-related books ever. Rollins raves about it in the interview. Yeah, and Guy Picciotto recommended it to Hank, right? Right, and, yeah, and, yeah. And so I've got it on my shelf staring right at me it's i have not cracked it yet but it's like in my next five or so books to read it's sitting there waiting (laughs) i've actually like when it comes to books about the fall the only one i've read is the one by marky smith Hmm. and like i know that mark would have just sugar-coated some of the shit that the other authors will be going through it because the band was so volatile with him yeah yeah so i do have it it's right there. I haven't read it. It's it's coming up. Okay. Second, I need a fall primer, Ryan. So here's your challenge. For uh-huh. next week, give me three to five fall records to dive into, and I'll give them a solid listen and report back. Oh, okay. Nice. Can you I do could that? probably do yeah, I could do it right now, but I'll I'll do it. I better make sure it's good. Right. You know, like I I don't want to just say this nation saving grace and it's like, you know, I should have picked two or three other ones or something or hex indication hour. And it's like, no, 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 not that one. Not that one. So I'm on it. I know you're a, I know you're a fall fan. So, Oh yeah. All right, Ryan, that's it. What do you have? Brant for my spiel this week. Mine is called copycat covers. Okay. Do you know why I'm calling it copycat covers? Are you talking about the Johnny thunders and Patty Paladin album copycats? No, not at all. Copycat covers copycat covers copycat album covers good one yeah yeah so this week's record cover is a copycat of the ornette coleman record this is our music we'll get into that in the history lesson but it got me thinking about all those other great copycat album covers that are out there so i thought i would rattle off the 10 that came to my mind when i thought of this theme of copycat album covers good one yeah yeah okay so here we go um, kind of in a bit of a order, I suppose. Um, but again, and there are lots more, right? Like there are just zillions and zillions. I could probably do 10 just on the Ramones, right? Right. But um, here we go. And uh, I would say number one is number one. Maybe it kind of starts off like at 10 for real, but I don't know. It's a bit random. Okay. Brent, Melvin's self-titled. Otherwise known as Lysol is a copy of. Is that's a copy of something? The with the indigenous guy on a horse? 
Yeah, the Keith Hartley Band, The Time Is Near album from 1970 on Derham Records. I did not know that. Yeah. Okay, number nine, Ball, or B-A-L-L, the Kramer Band. Yeah. yeah. Bird, that is a takeoff on the Beatles record, Yesterday and Today, from Capitol, 1966. You know the one with, like, the dead babies on the cover? Yep, yep. Yeah. That is done on the ball record Bird. That's the Shimmy Disc record, by the way. Shimmy Disc, awesome. Right, yeah. The Residents. Here's some more Beatles for you. Meet the Residents is a take on. Meet the Beatles. With the Beatles. Yeah. Parlophone, 1963. Okay, this one's this one's a little hard here. Olive Lawn, Sophomore Jinx is a take on. Hmm. Give up. Yeah. Okay, The Ventures, Knock Me Out. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 that makes 19, sense. 19, I don't know the Ventures cover, but I can picture it now. Yeah, yeah. yeah, 1964, Dalton. Okay, here's number six. The Hanson Brothers, Gross Misconduct is... Oh, that's easy, Road to Ruin. Road to Ruin, 1978, nice one. Let's see if you can keep this streak going. Hanson Brothers, My Game is a take on... My War. Which has what on the cover, Brant? <laughs> Uh, a puppet? There we go. boy. <laughs> All right. The Soul Asylum record. Speaking of Soul Asylum, Clam Dip and Other Delights is a take on? I don't know. Okay. It's the Herb Alpert with the Tijuana Brass Whipped Cream and Other Delights record from 1965 A&M. The Soul Asylum one is, you know, this dude all smeared with clam dip. Mm, mm-hmm. The Herb Alpert one is, you know that lady all in like the uh, the whipped cream right that that album cover has been spoofed a bazillion times too all right probably by the mono man i bet too <laughs> no there is one wrecker that's a spoof yeah no for sure it is but it's not a spoof of this herb alpert cover no, you're no. Cr- you're correct though wrecker is yeah, yeah yeah all right here we go the replacements number three is the replacements pleased to meet me is a take on hmm I have no idea. Ah, from 1960 on RCA Records, the Elvis Presley GI Blues album. Hmm. Did not okay. know that. Okay. Number two, Brant. Okay, we're getting to number one here. Number two, the replacements Hootenanny record is a take on. Hmm. I know this, but I, I'm not going to remember. The Various Artists compilation album, Hootenanny. From 1963 okay. on Crestview Records. Maybe I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> that is, that's a pretty uh, well-known, though, like comp record that has, you know, folk and country. If I had a hammer, La Bamba, Wade in the Water, one of those really iconic, um, you know, Americana comps from way back when, folk I, country. I think I know what your number one's going to be. Okay, number one, London Calling, The Clash is a take on uh, I didn't that's not what I thought your number one would be but it makes sense because you love the clash it's Elvis uh, Elvis sings or something like that Elvis Presley rock and roll from yeah. 1956 yeah. so that's that's number one those are the ten that came to my mind you mentioned another one what's the one you thought would be my number one I thought you'd do uh, the Zappa Sergeant Peppers one oh <laughs> we're only in it for the money nice yeah. one yeah. Good one. See, see, there's tons. There's tons. And I mean, this is Mechalodix is a great one. It's a great one, especially the level of detail they went to on this one. Sometimes those uh, copycat album covers, they phone it in. Joe and the boys did not phone this one in. Yeah. Well, and, hey, 
this made me think of Winston Smith. If you go on his Instagram, he's doing all kinds of these. Like some of them have actually been released, like the Bad Brains, the Punk well, Note the, yeah, editions. Yeah, I was going to say as well, good call. Like all those Punk Note ones yeah. are are totally a throwback to those iconic Blue Note 50s, 60s album covers, that, that feel, that vibe, very similar type of thing. This Universal Congress of record predates that by, you know, a few decades for sure yeah right on cool spiel man mm-hmm. well do you want to get mecco have we reached sufficient levels of mecca consciousness <laughs> history lesson part one uh, that's a good one all right so here we go uco we love them we love joe uh we had um two releases on from uco previously uh, the Joe Biza and Universal Congress of record at SST 109, where we were lucky enough to have Jason Kahn on the show. That's a great one. Go back and listen to that one. And then SST 180, the Prosperous and Qualified record, where we had Ralph Gorodetsky. So we've had a couple of the players from UCO on the show before. Super fortunate to, uh, to have had them on the show. Um, and I was really digging this record i went back and listened to those prior ones this week too like this is this is real honest to goodness legit jazz of the highest order man what a great record yeah yeah well there's a lot of reviews of this record in this press kit and everyone is just like these aren't just this isn't just a rock band trying to do jazz no no these guys have it dialed yeah, yeah. oh yeah yeah so ryan uh We've seen all of these players, you know, outside of, I think all of them, pretty much outside of UCO, except for maybe Ralph as well. Um, but this is the same core lineup as the previous record, 1988's Prosperous and Qualified. Joe Biza, of course, of Saccharine Trust on guitar. Uh, we had him on as, as a guest way back on episode 48 for We Became Snakes. Ooh, Saccharine Trust, yeah. Jason Kahn on drums. He's SST royalty. We've seen him with Cruel Frederick, The Leaving Trains. Mm-hmm. Trotsky? Uh, for a minute, I think so, yeah. yeah. Uh, Steve Moss, who also played with Saccharin on tenor sax, and Ralph Gordetsky on bass. There are a few other frequent collaborators on some of these tracks, but we'll get to that when we, when we go through the tracks. Now, to really get into the concept if I can call it that, of this album, we need to talk about Ornette Coleman for a bit. Indeed. So we've heard countless musicians on this podcast reference him as an influence. I'm sure everyone listening knows who Ornette is, uh, but in case you don't, I'll just give a brief overview. Um, he's an American jazz composer and multi-instrumentalist, primarily known as a saxophonist. Mm-hmm. Ornette was the principal initiator and leading exponent of free jazz in the late 1950s. The term itself derived from his 1960 album, Free Jazz, A Collective Improvisation. He's one of the most important and controversial innovators of the jazz avant-garde. He began playing alto and then tenor sax as a teenager and soon became a working musician in dance bands and R&B groups. Early in his career, his approach to harmony was already unorthodox and led to his rejection by established musicians in Los Angeles where he lived for most of the 50s. While working as an elevator operator, he studied harmony and played an inexpensive plastic alto saxophone at obscure nightclubs. 
Until then, all jazz improvisation had been based on fixed harmonic patterns. In the harmonic theory that, that Coleman developed in the 1950s, however, improvisers abandoned harmonic patterns, like chord changes, for example, in order to improvise more extensively and directly upon melodic and expressive elements. Because the tonal centers of such music changed at the improviser's will, it became known as free jazz. Ornette defined harmonics as the use of the physical and the mental of one's own logic made into an expression of sound to bring about the musical sensation of unison executed by a single person or with a group. Harmonics speaks to free musical composition from any tonal center, allowing harmonic progression independent of traditional European notions of tension and release. Harmonics may loosely be defined as an expression of music in which harmony, movement, and sound, and melody all share the same value. Hmm. The general effect is that music achieves an immediately open expression without being constrained by tonal limitations rhythmic predetermination or harmonic rules now ornette had been preparing a book called the harmonic theory since the 1970s but it remains unpublished he famously did however describe his long simmering ideas in a 1983 manifesto titled primetime for harmonics the title references the band primetime which he formed in 1975 that featured two bassists two guitarists and uh, like his ensemble on the album free jazz two drummers harmonic playing could be dissonant atonal and cacophonous and it could be sublime often in the same moment in the liner notes to ornette coleman's complete atlantic recordings robert palmer says each contribution is equally essential to the whole. One tends to hear the horn player as a soloist, backed by a, a rhythm section, but this is not Coleman's perspective. Quote, In the music we play, said Ornette, no one player has the lead. Anyone can come out with it at any time. Jerry Garcia, who played on Ornette's 1988 album, Virgin Beauty, remembers feeling confused when first recording with Ornette. Jerry was quoted as saying, Ornette said, oh, just go ahead and play, man. And I thought, oh, I get it now. <laughs> Here's some quotes I found from Ornette that sum up his, his outlook that I like. I play pure emotion. In mm. music, the only thing that matters is whether you feel it or not. It was when I realized I could make mistakes that I decided I was really on to something. If you apply your feelings to sound, regardless of what instrument you have, you'll probably make good music. Sometimes I play happy, sometimes I play sad, but the condition of being alive is what I play all the time. Now, the reason I'm talking about this and, and harmonics is that's kind of like well, I'll let Jason describe it. Here, here's what Jason told me about mechalotics. Mechalotics is a kind of semi-serious satirical take on harmonics. Joe came up with the term, and then Jason wrote the, the notes under the pseudonym Will Cox. His middle name is Will Cox, which was his mother's maiden name. Jason says, I guess you could say it was in, an inside joke in the band. The funny thing was, on our first tour in Europe, especially in Germany, 
people really took this seriously. They thought the liner notes were true and that mechalotics was indeed some kind of esoteric musical system like Ornette's <laughs> harmelotics. I guess this was, at least from my point of view, the impetus for coming up with mechalotics as a wink and a nod to Ornette, whose compositions we covered and who we all revered. Yeah, so people should know, I mentioned this during the spiels, this record, This Is Mechalotics, is, as as we said, a take on the Ornette Coleman record. This is our music. And like the Ornette Coleman record, there are, as Jason was saying, there are extensive liner notes written on the back. And if you put them side by side with the Ornette Coleman record itself, have you done that, Brent? I did, yeah. So the uh, the artwork on the front, the photo of the band, the coloration, it's all you know spot on you flip it over the liner notes the the paragraphs the box in the middle everything is a take on that record and it looks really really authentic yeah and it's really really like if you don't know you would read this and maybe take it totally serious like they talk about you know this is a high fidelity recording congress uses a specially constructed 24 channel sound craft tape recorder for its recording sessions like that spiel the ornette coleman version is on the you know the ornette record they basically just congressized it right they <laughs> they uco'd it so on the back of this record there's an explanation of what are the mechalotics so i'll give you a spiel on that hit me and this is again what will cox wrote on the back of this jacket a total take on the ornette record in an awesome way it's a new day and an unfamiliar word stands at the crossroads mechalotics tracing the origins of this exciting approach to improvisation joe Beiser recalls quote the first time i experienced mechalotics was when i heard my aunt lucy's boyfriend sal play trumpet in the bar down the street from my parents house we lived in Wilmington, and a lot of mariachi bands roamed back and forth between the bars and restaurants. Sal used to carry his horn a silver pocket trumpet. Pocket trumpet, just like who, Brent? Just like Don Cherry. You got it. With him, and when these mariachi musicians showed up at the bar, he tried to jam with them. Sal listened mostly to jazz, so he ended up playing a sort of bebop mariachi blend. Fast, hard lines against the plaintive singing and mournful horns. This didn't always mesh and sometimes Sal had to drop his horn and grab the nearest beer bottle. For me, a 12-year-old kid, this was mechalotics. The sound of breaking glass over a screaming, angry mariachi band playing their instruments at full volume, singing wildly, throwing punches, and Sal laughing, ducking, picking up his horn to defiantly blow a bebop lick, then busting through the front door out into the street, only to run into another mariachi band, and the whole mess starting all over again. I never knew what to expect. The words of today's foremost mechalotician <laughs> succinct, succinctly stated, you never know what to expect. Joe explains, quote, this is the very essence of spontaneous creation. We don't think in terms of harnessing this raging pure energy. These impulses emanate from somewhere higher, something beyond ourselves. We only want to serve as a channel for these impulses and manifest them through the beauty of sound. Our place as mechalodicians 
is not to focus on how the sound is, on what the sound is, on when the sound is, but that the sound just is. The beauty of this Genesis, like a child being born. So that's part of the spiel from Wilcox. But again, like it is very, very reminiscent and a total take on the back of the Ornette album. Even uh, this this spiel here when they're talking about, you know, the recording equipment and stuff. Um, it says the finest vinylite compound is used for for this for this vinyl. And it talks about the spacing on the grooves and everything like that. It's just a treat. Look at these side by side. Yeah, and Jason designed that cover too. Yeah, I asked him about some some of the stuff on there. Like, there's a story about Ralph getting you know roughed up or whatever after a gig. <laughs> yeah, and he goes, "This is this is made up, taken from some details from Ornette Coleman's life, where he was supposedly roughed up after a gig in Texas because because of his saxophone playing. I believe he he was on tour with a blues band at that time, not his quartet." The liner notes on this is mechalotics are really about the music being too much for people to handle, pushing them in some cases to states of exasperation and violence, as well as inspiration and awe. Mm. When was the first time we probably would have talked about Ornette on the show? Would it have been a Treacherous Jaywalkers episode or even before that with maybe a Saccharine Trust album? Yeah, maybe. Probably Saccharine maybe would be the first time we we spoke because i think we would have been talking about how joe had a real jazzy take even in saccharin at the time right yeah but i mean like a lot of the musicians on sst were listening to oh all of yeah. this stuff you know yeah, yeah. You, if you read get in the van henry talks about them playing ornette and sonny rollins and john coltrane and albert eiler in the van and before shows through the PA and all kinds of, you know. Yeah. Another one that's often mentioned at the same time as UCO as an influence is James Blood Elmer as mm -hmm. well with Ornette. Yeah, for sure. Totally makes sense. Yep. Uh, so like Prosperous and Qualified, this was engineered by, how do we say it? Vitus? <laughs> We've had so many people correct us and stuff, man. I think it's uh, Vitus Matare. Okay. We got to have him on, man. Yeah, Vetus, come on, yeah. man. At his studio, Lyceum Sound Recorders. Uh, I think it's, well, I was going to say, I think it's considered an EP. It is an EP. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's only 30 minutes long. I thought possibly it's leftovers from Prosperous, maybe, uh, from those sessions, because, you know, SST did that quite often. Uh, so I did ask Jason. He told me, it's hard for me to remember clearly when we recorded these tracks. I'm pretty sure this was its own session. Recorded again at Lyceum Sound, engineered and produced by Vetus. Um, I mean, it wouldn't have been difficult to get into into that studio, I don't think. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I'd be interested to know how many takes some of these took. Like, were these first takes? Yeah. Well, it's all, it's definitely all live, right? Like, you couldn't, yeah. you couldn't improvise the way they are on this record by overdubbing stuff. No. The sound is amazing. Yeah. It's it's what a great live sounding record too. Like it it sounds like a studio record, but live. It's awesome. All of, all of the Vita stuff always sounds great. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I had the same thought. You know, like some of this, I'm I'm sure they did did more than one take to get mm -hmm. something they were all happy with. I asked uh, Jason about tourage. 
He said, we went on tour for two months through the U.S. and Canada after recording uh, this album. Something like mid-May to mid-July, around 50 shows. We then wow. went, to, went to Europe in September that same year and played another 40 shows or so. Germany, France, Belgium, Austria, Switzerland, Hungary, the Netherlands. The band kind of took off when we got to Europe. This is Mechalotics was number two on the critics list from Specs, which was something like a German version of Spin Magazine at that time. I feel like either Joe or Jason or both of them talked about the importance of this article that came out in this magazine. Mm. Yeah, I'm not not surprised at all that they took off in Europe, though. Yeah. Uh, Jason said, we'd done an interview with someone from Specs when we played CBGB's in July. Uh, of 1989. By the time we got to Germany, a couple months later, the interview had been printed and we had all kinds of interest in the group. Uh, we'd get to gigs and there'd be all these giant posters of the cover of the album pasted everywhere. It was a weird feeling to be doing such outside music and have so much interest. At some gigs, there would be like 500 people or more. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm And I'm pretty sure I didn't ask him to confirm this, I should have, but I'm pretty sure this tour was done with alternatives. That would be a great bill. Yeah, yeah, that's like the perfect SST double bill. Mm -hmm. Maybe paper bag too would be a good triple bill. Sure. Uh, he goes on, but it, it was also at this point that I decided to leave the band. I was burned out from all the touring. Other issues like drug and alcohol use contributed to a somewhat, in my opinion, lacks work ethic, which resulted in no new material being developed. We were playing more and more covers, but not working on anything of our own. It started to feel like a strange kind of bar band, just slogging it through every night. I decided to move to Berlin, Berlin and pursue more improvised and experimental music, which he's still doing today, by the way. Mm -hmm. I did end up sitting in for a drummer who couldn't do one of the UCO tours in Germany after I had left the band. But for the most part, I was done. Joe and I continued to play together off and on. Should we talk about the tracks, Ryan? Yeah, man. History lesson, part two. Here, let me hit you with some Spaceman before we get into the tracks here, Brent. Yeah. Okay, from the SST catalog. Universal Congress of, this is Mechalotics. The cover may pay homage to Ornette Coleman, but the music within does much more. Joe Baeza takes his Universal Congress of on a journey of musical discovery in these five songs of swinging inspiration and unabashed melodic rapture. Now's the time to be mechaloticized. SST 204 LP and cassette $6.50 I think this came out on CD also maybe. Uh, I believe it did. It only has it as uh 12 inch and cassette on yeah. uh, the catalog though well, maybe later on cd too yeah i remember when i bought this record like i don't remember every record i bought but i remember i bought this i was at amoeba records in san francisco i bought this record oh. and it was it was like three bucks nice what a nice snag many of the reviews in the press kit mention both this album and prosperous in the same review like they're they're you know, they both came out in 1988. Not mm -hmm. sure how close together, but it seems like fairly close. Yeah. Also, sadly, Ryan, this is their last release on SST. Yeah, but thankfully, not the last UCO if you keep on digging. 
Yeah, Joe and Steve Moss kept the band going for three more records until 1997-ish. Joe, Ralph, Steve, and ex-Saccharin drummer Tony Cicero also recorded as the band Mechalodiacs in the Mm -hmm. mid to late 90s. Even the the press kit, the front page of the the press kit also mentions like both records and kind of dips in and and out of both of them, like in the the write-up, which I'm... Mm-hmm. Pretty sure is by the spaceman, but here's the end of it. On our own time, we attempted to let the music speak for itself. Through the barrage of demented scales and mechalotics, we were able to discern a vicious groove, thick, unrelenting rhythm mixed with two of the hottest front men in the biz. Biza, Moss, Gorodetsky, and Khan. Remember the ingredients. This is prosperous mechaloticizing at its most qualified. This is the universal congress of you want to jump right into the cauldron after them. Prosperous mechaloticizing? Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. At its most qualified. Indeed. Yeah. Okay. Track one, side one. Ninos de la Tierra. Mm-hmm. Written by Joe Biza. The title translated is Children of the Earth, which is the common name for, I'm not even going to try and say it, but an insect known around these parts as the potato bug. (laughs) You mean known around these parts, like in Canada? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, potato bugs. Yeah. Musically, uh, they really set the tone with this one. It's a 12 and a half minute thrill ride. The first 45... uh, you know, seconds is just all dynamics building up and breaking down. Swells. Yeah. Amazing swells. Really sets it off. Yeah. Drums, bass, guitar, and that killer buys a tone. That for sure is f- Fender gear. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure it is. Awesome sax solo. Awesome guitar solo. Love the bass line that holds it all together. It's yeah. re- It's really the centerpiece for me on this record. So uh, after those first 45 seconds, he starts kind of this central riff that the bass line is built around. Sounds like Jason is alternating between his normal kit and some mallets, maybe on a timpani at, mm. at the start. The bass lays down this hypnotic groove for like eight measures. And then Jason, I love it, he just cracks his snare. And then the mechalotics start to flow. Yeah. They're, and they're just prosperous and qualifi- qualified. <laughs> The horns are more or less in stereo, with the guitar playing the same pattern. Jacob Cohn is on alto sax, Steve on tenor. We've seen seen Jacob previously on episode 127, The Cruel Frederick, The Birth of the Cruel LP. And uh, he also chipped in on Prosperous. The first solo, I'd say, and this is only a guess, is the tenor sax. Starts out uh, super melodic. Uh, but then both the solo and the band's backing groove just ratchet up the intensity as the solo goes along. Mm-hmm. And then who I assume is Jacob on the alto sax uh, comes in for a total scronk fest. Again, Jason is <laughs> Jason is especially ratcheting up the whole thing on drums. And then around the seven-minute mark, Joe Biza just comes blazing in and reminds everyone he's one of the all-time greats. He's rocking a wah. Definitely improvised, as all of these solos are. Uh, like you said earlier, I, I said, makes you wonder how many takes of this they did. I don't know. Joe Joe plays like like uh, an improv sax player on the guitar, yeah. and it's just killer. 
yeah, the way they play off of each other is is super awesome. Uh, and then Joe plays himself out, and we're back into the mechalotics section again. Mm-hmm. The the kind of out outro melody they play has almost an eastern feel to it. Yeah. Jason said, as far as I recall, Joe wrote the melody for this piece, and Ralph came up with the bass line. This was probably my favorite Universal Congress of Peace. It really took off live and was fun to play because the because of the asymmetrical structure, 11-4. Mm. Aside from the melody at the beginning and end of the tune, all of this was improvised. And then uh, here's a review from a zine called Low Life, which uh, is uncredited, the writer's uncredited. Uh, they call it the masterwork here is the near 15-minute Baiza composition Ninos de la Tierra, an intricate, subtly woven piece unlike anything in rock and very little in jazz. There's been nothing quite this strong and emotionally sound since Let My Children Hear Music, which is a Charles Mingus record from 1972. And that's a lineage I don't drag out at just any old jazz rock band. With this third release, Universal Congress of moves ahead of almost everyone. It's quite the opening track. Mm-hmm. And then we go into an Otis Rush cover, All Your Love. Yeah. When you see the song uh, written on albums, it's often with I Miss Loving in parentheses. All Your Love, I Miss Loving. Uh, this track was written by Chicago blues guitarist Otis Rush in 1958. It's been covered by nearly everyone, and you would hear the song at you know almost any blues jam that yeah. you, you could ever it's, go to. It's like a standard, hey? Yeah, oh, for sure. Uh, it was released as a single on the Cobra label, apparently written in the car on the way to the studio. Uh, the, the original does have a sax playing, you know, the, the kind of Afro-Cuban counter melody to the guitar riff. Uh, here, Steve's are, are doubled, so he, it creates a cool, almost Egyptian-sounding harmony for me. Uh, it's Bison vocals. He does a great job. Very similar in style, or maybe feel, maybe not style, but feel to the Willie Dixon cover they do on Prosperous. Hmm. I get the feeling, though, that it's stuff like this that Jason was referencing when he said, you know, they were maybe doing too many covers, or that it, it was starting to feel like a bar band or whatever. Probably. Like, it's not it's not far out enough for him maybe. Yeah. I mean I it's cool and I get that we can't necessarily have a full album of Nino Stella Tierra, but I also, you know, think like it's just all right for me. It's hard to follow something as bitchin' as I don't mind it. I think it works on this record. It, yeah. I'm I'm along for the ride. I mean I like it better than Happy Birthday. Yeah, well, maybe others didn't share my opinion. That same low life review calls the inclusion of this track a wise move, although they would have preferred that they cover uh, the song Violent Love, which I think is another Otis Rush song. Mm. And just like that, Ryan, we're over to side two with, as you mentioned, Happy Birthday. So it it is, you know, the Happy Birthday song. Uh, they play it all the way through twice in a very traditional way with Jason playing kind of a march. But then th- then things just go sideways. Uh, this one is just, it's just horny as hell. You've got Steve Moss and Jacob Kahn joining in again, but also Lynn Johnston, who uh, we've seen all over the SST catalog on tenor sax, and uh, Guy Bennett 
on trombone, also a member of Cruel Frederick. Uh, here's Jason. From my point of view, this was a kind of homage on the way Albert Eiler approached improvising with mm -hmm. very simple melodies. The original recording had me on vocals, but we decided to leave it off because, quite frankly, it might have been too extreme for many people at the time. So I don't, <laughs> I don't know what was extreme about Jason's vocals, but I'd love to hear that. Yeah, there's a well, there's a long tradition in jazz of doing a standard like this as basically like a basic framework for them to just go off. Yeah. Jason says, I don't really remember why we chose this melody as a platform to improvise from, as opposed to some other such simple melody. Uh, that same reviewer in Low Life came to the same conclusion. Happy birthday is how Albert Eiler would have done it. Maybe if Tom Verlaine had been in the band. Ooh. <laughs> what do you think of that? I dig it. But you don't dig happy birthday. Not so much. Yeah, it's kind of a well, skipper. Yeah, I don't really like solo Tom Verlaine that much either, though. You know? I don't really like Happy Birthday, the song. <laughs> <laughs> Period. What about Bonafetta? <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. Okay, but then we've got a, a corker, Ryan. Uh, Law oh, yeah. Years. Oh, yeah. The Ornette cover on the album. This track was originally released on Ornette Coleman's 1972 album, Science Fiction. Uh, it's considered a, that album a, a bit of a return to form from that era, mainly because he brought back Don Cherry, Charlie Hayden, and Billy mm -hmm. Higgins into the group. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. It would be a good album to start with, actually, if you're interested in getting into Ornette, I would say. 70s era? Sure. Yeah. Sure. If you want to, you know, starting to get a little, I don't know, getting into the electrification a bit. Yeah, it's right before he went electric. Yeah. You can get... Um, uh, his 1982 album Broken Shadows which was made up of the same recordings from these uh, sessions uh, on the uh, complete science fiction sessions it's mm. both albums uh, this is a really killer version it's fair, fairly faithful to the original actually but they totally put their own stamp on it great bass intro yeah uh, here's from Low Life they plow through Ornette's law years with the exuberance required by the nature of the song I asked Jason if this track uh, held any significance for them. Like, you know, were they listening to it on tour? And I asked him about his gnarly drum solo. He goes, I'm sure we listened to this on tour. I used to take this big box of cassettes with me on our long tours, and we'd listen to hours of music every day while we were driving from gig to gig. Yeah. I'm not sure whether science fiction itself held any more significance than other releases of Ornette's, but I guess... We just found this tune particularly inspiring, and that's why we covered it. My drum solo is improvised and would get extended or compressed when we played this live, depending on the situation. Of course, Ed Blackwell loomed large for me when soloing. Ed Blackwell was one of Ornette's, you know, drummers. Uh, the drummer that kind of is, you know, played in this famous quartet that really started making waves. With, and, you know, he's considered one of the great innovators of free jazz one of the first to, to fuse kind of New Orleans jazz and African rhythms with bebop. Thinking about all this music just really, really makes me want to see that documentary, Fire Music, the free free jazz doc. I keep going to the website like every week to see if you can buy it or stream it. It's not out yet, eh? It's just in theaters. Oh, yeah. But if you watch the trailer for it, like it's going to be so good, man. Oh, yeah. That's, that's a must watch. 
And member Thurston has a book coming out about free jazz. Member? Yeah, I member. Okay. I member. Uh, and then, as righteous as Jason's drum solo is, uh, and the rest of the band's playing, Steve Moss is kind of the star of this track, clearly influenced in a big way by Ornette, like with his playing. Mm-hmm. Totally does him justice on this track. And then the last track is Joey. Ooh. Another Joe Biza track, kind of bookending the album. Wowzers. Yeah, so check this out. This is what Jason told me. This was entirely improvised, which is pretty obvious. And at least from my point of view was our take on the John Coltrane Rashid Ali LP Interstellar Space. Ah. Makes sense, right? Because yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a that's a duet that he did with with just a drummer in 1967. And and that's what this is. This is just Joe and Jason. So Yeah. Oh, it's so sweet this track. The tone and the recording is amazing. It's one like just ultra tasty and sparse guitar with uh, just really, really great accompaniment in yeah. the percussion. The, the guitar sound, though, just the tone and the notes that Joe was hitting, it's like hair standing up on your arms and the back of your neck quality, this track. Yeah. Uh, Lowlife called it Biza's ultimate guitar statement. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's a cool EP, man. Nice and tight. I was thinking I wish it would have been longer, but... Yeah, I don't know. I like an EP sometimes. It's good. It feels like a record, like a full length. It's 30 minutes. Yeah. It's a solid listen. It's not like a, you know, you know, when you think of like a rock, I'll just call it, you know, a rock 12 inch EP, you know, the, uh, the, the single is track a, and then the, the B cut is like a live track or something, you know, maybe you get three tracks on a 12 inch. That feels like an EP. This feels more like an album to me. It's true. Uh, Here's from Option Magazine, 1988, written by Scott Berger. The sleeves, a brilliant takeoff on the Ornette Coleman landmark, This Is Our Music. The music's a winning refinement of Joe Biza's artistic vision, an ideal he's pursued with saccharine trust and in a couple of Congress LPs. This time, Biza's probing guitar lines are controlled and purposeful, like some bastard progeny of Don Cherry and Tom Verlaine again, Ryan. No way. Interesting that that's the second reviewer to mention Tom Verlaine. Tom Verlaine. Not something I hear myself, but Mm -hmm. uh, he goes on. His two compositions, especially the long Ninos de la Terra, offer both structure and freedom and openness, well utilized by band members Jason Kahn and Steve Moss. Here are rock musicians venturing into difficult jazz and not sounding like dilettantes. There's a credible version of Ornette's Law Years, a howling essay of Otis Rush's All Your Love, and a raucous happy birthday with additional horn players from Cruel Frederick. Overall, this is more adventuresome than Ornette's new LP, The Sons Unwittingly Slaying the Father. So yeah, the artwork, Ryan, great photo on the cover by Martin Lyon, who frequently photographed the band. Oh, yeah. Uh, left to right, we've got Steve Moss as Don Cherry, <laughs> Jason as Ed Blackwell, Biza as Ornette, and Ralph Gordetsky looking just cool as fuck as Charlie Hayden. Yeah, they look so badass. Yeah. Uh, Charlie Hayden, of course, father of treacherous jaywalkers, Josh Hayden. Mm-hmm. Right down to the suits they're wearing, the way they're standing, their facial expressions, Steve's shades, the color scheme of the lettering on the cover. Mm-hmm. Just awesome. Yeah. Jason told me they just 
you know, all totally loved and frequently covered the songs off of This Is Our Music, which makes sense. How about Dead Wax, Ryan? We've got some. There's Dead Wax in the house. Hit me. Only on side A, though. Here's what it says. El Meco de Wilmas. Hmm. Nothing on side B. Hmm. But it's cool that we got some. Yeah. All right. I guess then it's the ballot result. Ballot result. Well, I'm going to go for Ninos and Joey. Those are, you know, the bookend tracks. My faves by a long shot. Yeah, I like the Ornette co- cover too, but it's got to be Nino Smith. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, I'm down. It's got to so, be. So down. Yeah. All right. Great record, man. And yeah. hey, thanks to Jason for chipping in with some cool... The deets. Cool insights. Yeah, love it. Yeah. All right, Ryan, what's next week? Man, next week we are going uh, way back to another fave. It's SST. 205 the descendants hall raker live right on can't wait hey everyone thanks for listening you can find us on facebook instagram twitter tumblr all at mojack pod we post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show our blog is mojackpod.com please check it out for some exclusive content if you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.